Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross and it is time for a preview of the 2021 NITO ATP Finals in Torino for the very first year, but also a loaded show otherwise as I want to get a little bit into Carlos Alcaraz's win last week in Milan at the Next Gen ATP Finals as well as Tommy Paul's victory in Stockholm, a missed opportunity for Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime, and finally an update on the Shuaipang situation. I made a video earlier this mor this morning about the reports that Shuaipang is missing after accusing a high-ranking Chinese official of sexual assault, and that story has developed throughout the day. So uh, this is important. Please stick around for that. And there are some updates that I want to talk about. But let us begin with uh, Torino and the ATP Next Gen Finals. The groups this year are sort of organized by height, I would say. Uh, the green group consists of Novak Djokovic, Stefano Tsitsipas, Andre Rublev, and Kaspar Ruud. I would call that group the small group, but they're actually just normal size. It's that the other group is all giants. Uh, the red group has Daniil Medvedev, Alexander Zverev, Matteo Berrettini, and Hubert Hurkacz. Last year, they organized the group seemingly by backhands and forehands. So it's the second year in a row that there's a clear theme here. Last year, they put Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, and Schwartzman in one group. Those are the backhands. And then they put Nadal, Team, Tsitsipas, and Rublev, the forehands, in the other group. So first year in Turin, those are the groups. And I'm not going to do a power ranking. Obviously, there's no quarter-by-quarter -quarter preview in a round robin. Uh, but I am going to put the players in tiers. I am going to predict a champion. But first, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the head-to-heads because I made a table. Uh, credit to the WTA for giving me this idea. This was in the Guadalajara uh, media notes, and I liked it. And then it wasn't in the ATP media notes. So I made my own table. And if you're watching on YouTube, you see it now. It is the head-to-head of everyone in the event. Medvedev, Djokovic, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Berrettini, Ruud, Hercoc, Sinner. And I wanted to go through a couple of, well, Sinner if Berrettini doesn't play. Uh, I should say right now, actually, that two matches have been completed at this year's finals. With the Sunday start, it messed up my schedule a little bit. And uh, two matches are completed. Uh, Daniil Medvedev over Hubert Hurkacz in three sets. And then, really sad, Matteo Berrettini having to retire in the second set after losing the first set in a tiebreak to Alexander Zverev. And Berrettini was absolutely crushed playing in front of the Italian crowd, supporting him like crazy. And uh, it looked like the ab injury, which saw him miss a lot of the beginning of the season and uh, knocked him out of Australia. So that same injury resurfacing, it, it looked like, and he's going to have some scans done, and he might he may be out of the tournament. If he does withdraw, it'll be Yannick Sinner, another Italian coming in to replace him. 
But I'm going to put these uh, head-to-heads back up on the screen and just talk about a couple of takeaways I had from this exercise. Uh, first of all, Djokovic and Rublev have never played. It's the only really notable, besides Rude and Hercoc, uh, it's the only really surprising first meeting that we'll have at this year's finals. But I really don't think that's going to be very pretty for Andre Rublev. It's not a matchup that I'm really fascinated, you know, to see. I mean, I'm not mad to see it. I'm, 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 I'll happily sit back and watch that match. But it, it's not like, ooh, what's going to happen here? No, I think it's going to be a terrible matchup for Andre Rublev. And if you look at Rublev's head-to-heads, they all make sense. Andre Rublev plays well against players who don't like pace, who are susceptible to being rushed, and who have attackable backhand sides. So if you look at Rublev's head-to-heads, one in four against Medvedev. Uh, loves pace, can't attack the backhand, can't rush him. 0-5 against Zverev, likes pace, great backhand, can't really rush him. Tsitsipas, attackable backhand, doesn't handle pace that well. And Rublev has a pretty even three and four head-to-head. Berrettini. Very attackable backhand. Rublev doesn't return the serve that well, so 2-3 and three record against Berrettini. Kaspar Ruud, attackable backhand. Rublev's 4-0. Hubert Hurkacz, loves pace, can't attack the backhand. Rublev's 0-2. I mean, the, the head-to-heads with Andre Rublev, it is so predictable. Not to say on a match-by-match basis that you can easily predict it, but over, over the long term, the trend is very predictable, and, you know, it I'm almost positive that Djokovic is going to give Andre a lot of uh, issues here. Um, Another trend that I saw from looking at the head-to-heads is Djokovic has never lost to the bottom of the field. He's undefeated against Berrettini, Rude, and Hercoc, and of course has never played Rublev. So the only players that Djokovic has actually lost to in his career are the top four players here in the ATP Finals when the top eight players get together. That is pretty astonishing, but at the same time, um, Medvedev and Zverev aren't too shabby themselves because Medvedev has just one loss. Uh, well, actually two if you count Rublev. Uh, I was actually, you'd have to cut out. Yeah, yeah. Two if you count Rublev. Medvedev has one loss to Rublev, one loss to Hercoc, but a really strong record against those guys. And then Zverev has only one loss. That was against Berrettini in Madrid a couple of years ago. So the top guys here are pretty dominant against Rublev, Berrettini, Rude, and and Hercoc, the top guys being uh, Medvedev, Djokovic, and Zverev, and Tsitsipas being kind of the bridge there. Um, Berrettini, his struggles against the the best players at the top, you know, the top seeds here, that kind of stands out. 0-2 against Medvedev. Um, he is 0-4 against Djokovic, 1-4 against Zverev, 0-2 against Tsitsipas. So not a lot of wins for Matteo Berrettini against these top guys. And then the last thing that I noticed is Kaspar Ruud, who is very inexperienced at this stage, and that's very easy to forget. But this should be a good this should be a good experience for him just playing these top eight in the race players. Uh, because those numbers are low for Rude. The only guy, the only two guys that he's played four times are Rublev and Berrettini. Everyone else, he's played two, three times. Uh, he's never played Hercoc. Easy to forget. Rude is young. Rude has missed some time in his career and just doesn't have a lot of experience against this kind of competition. Um, and with that, I will move on to 
putting these uh, these groups in tiers and picking a champion. Well, first of all, I'm I'm actually glad that I'm making this video after two matches have been played because I had no clue what the conditions were going to be. So I, I hate predicting a tournament when I don't know how the courts are going to play. Uh, that, that's never ideal. So I'm actually glad. Uh, very, very quick, lightning quick. And look, Daniil Medvedev, as I've begun to, to know his personality more and more, he's hilarious, and I, I love him very much, but he exaggerates all the time. Every time he opens his mouth, it's the best, it's the worst, it's the worst of all time, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. There's constant exaggerations with him. However, he did say it's the fastest court he's ever played on. So, so I will take his word. Um, that maybe, look, I don't think that this is some incredible lightning. Let's see what other players say. But uh, really quick, really, really quick. That's what we're getting. That's uh, There were not any real break chances um, in the Medvedev-Hurkacz match. Medvedev didn't face a break point. Hurkacz um, was broken on two service games in the second and the third set. So uh, it was quite the serve fest. And then Zverev and Berrettini went to a tie break in the first set. Uh, so so far, and yes, this is that is the group with the uh, the six foot six and above only group where they're serving massive. But yeah, uh, lots of serve dominance, and it seems that the courts will be very very fast. That will play a part in how I feel about this field. So let's put these guys into tiers. Without a doubt, I would be surprised if this tier one, one of the guys in tier one, did not. Uh, win this thing. One of Medvedev, Djokovic, and Zverev. Speedy indoor hardcourt, or really just any court right now, if we're being completely honest about the state of Tsitsipas, the state of Berrettini, and the state of Rublev. Any surface you really put this finals on, Medvedev, Djokovic, and Zverev are going to be a cut above the rest. I always like Zverev indoors. I think he plays well indoors, and I think that helps him close the gap. Of course, it's best of three. That helps him close the gap. So sometimes I would consider, depending on the situation and the conditions, I would consider putting Djokovic and Medvedev in a tier above Zverev. But I actually think best of three, speedy indoor hardcourt, Zverev's right there, and all three of those guys belong in the same tier. In tier two are Tsitsipas, Rublev, and Hercotch, in my opinion. Uh, Tsitsipas had elbow inflammation in Paris, but even up to that point, he hasn't been overwhelmingly good ever since losing in the Roland Garros finals. He's looked a little bit on edge mentally. He had a tragedy. He had a foot injury. Now he has an elbow injury. So when I was watching Pass and I was like, mm, he mentally doesn't look right. And that's what I was saying all summer. I'm like, something's up, something's up with this guy. He's not looking good just mentally. Well, what was up with him? I think he was injured. Uh, that's... That's what it kind of looks like. You know, Tsitsipas says that he's been dealing with this elbow injury for uh, several weeks prior to Paris. So that tells me that it's probably not just going to go away in one week and totally be gone. Uh, clearly, he's been able to play through it, but he's put together a lot of passive, not, you know, just not aggressive enough uh, matches, and he's lost a bunch of them, and he just... 
His head hasn't looked all there. Plus, on a really fast court, I wouldn't be surprised if he struggles on return. So not too high on Tsitsipas. Rublev has really, really struggled as of late. He just hasn't been a, a top five caliber player. So, I, I mean, it seems like he really needs a vacation Similar to Tsitsipas, he seems pretty frustrated out there on a very consistent basis. I think the confidence isn't very high. He's struggling to protect his backhand. He's not serving all that well. He looks pretty lost. I'm I'm not very high on Rublev. And then Hercoc. Now, Hercoc is the guy, if it's not going to be Medvedev, Djokovic, and Zverev, if you tell me there's going to be a surprise champion, I'm probably going to—I would probably say that Hercoc would be the guy to win this thing. And we have had some players who were— unsuspecting. Uh, Pass wasn't really one of the top favorites when, when he won it. So who knows? You know, Djokovic hasn't won this thing in a while since winning it, I think it was four times in a row from, what, uh, 2015 uh, back from like, what, 2011 to 2015? Won four times in a row, something like that. Um, so I don't know. Maybe Hercoc can can make this happen. At the end of the day, I don't see him in, you know, generally speaking, on 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 the level of Medvedev, Djokovic, and Zverev. He's doing a lot of things well. I think his forehand is still a major weakness um, relative to the rest of his game. A lot of things work great with him. He serves great. I also think his return can improve. He serves great. He moves great. His backhand is awesome. He volleys incredibly well. He's got a pretty good head on his shoulders, but the, the forehand just holds him back, in my opinion, right now, and I don't think he's on that level. So uh, he is in my tier two, up there with Tsitsipas and Rublev, who have accomplished a bit more in their careers. But I think Hercoc for this event is right up there with them. And I do see him, if I'm going to say there's a dark horse, it is Hubert Hercoc on a speedy court, the way he redirects pace, changes direction, covers the court very well in a hard court, and serves big. The key is serving big, because I do think that this surface is going to really reward good serving. Um, the final tier is Casper Ruud and either Yannick Sinner or Matteo Berrettini. I don't know who it is going to be moving forward, but regardless, I have them tier th three. Uh, again, Ruud, a little bit inexperienced against the top competition, and if this court is as quick as it seems, I do think that Casper Ruud is going to have trouble against some of these guys. Rublev has been a matchup nightmare for him. Uh, Tsitsipas has um, their one-and-one. One. I mean, look, Tsitsipas, Rude attacks the backhand side well, but Tsitsipas does too. I mean, I don't know. I think that could be a, a pretty decent match. I think Djokovic uh, will really pin him in his backhand corner and give Casper some, some major problems with that. But ultimately, this court is probably going to be a little bit quick for him, and we've seen a lot of players come to this event at a young age playing for the first time, and it's a very overwhelming experience. And you learn from it. You normally do better the second time. But if that's going to be, you know, if anyone's going to kind of get beaten up at this event, I feel like it will would probably be Casper Ruud. Um, and let's see what happens. But, yeah, I, it would probably be him if that's going to happen to someone. Uh, but I'm really glad he's here. I think it's going to be a great learning experience for him. I think... Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what he can do. And then uh, Sinner or Berrettini, I mean, I don't know. There's not that much to say. Look, Berrettini hasn't looked the same since Wimbledon. That's what I've kind of maintained. Um, 
obviously these two Italian Italians, they're going to have the the crowd behind them. Sinner on a court this fast, I think has some some issues with the serve return dynamic, generally speaking. But um, I don't want to get I don't have too much to say about this. You know, there I don't know what's going to happen there. Let's see. Uh, Yannick Sinner would obviously be coming from a, a zero an an zero and one deficit. So he would have to come back and win both matches, one against Medvedev, one against Hercoc. He's 0-2 against Medvedev, 0-1 against Hercoc, uh, just to cap off the head-to-head theme here. And I can't see that happening, so that's Tier 3. Who is my winner? Well, I already said it's coming out of my Tier 1. It's going to be Djokovic, Medvedev, or Zverev. My pick is Daniil Medvedev. I think the extra speed helps him. If this is going to be lightning quick, I do think it helps him. He is probably, if you include the second serve, I think he's the best server of the three. Uh, He's won four straight matches against Zverev. So despite the 5-5 head-to-head, it's a little bit misleading. I think he has a good handle on that head-to-head. I think Zverev hates how he hates the low bounce. He does not defend as well against Medvedev as he does against other players, generally speaking, because of the low bounce. He can struggle with finishing. Daniil's speed can get in his head a little bit, in my opinion. I trust Medvedev's serve a little bit more. I think that Medvedev can be proactive and change direction um, more often, especially on the backhand. So I don't see that as a no-brainer. I'm interested to see what Zverev can do. Obviously, 6-2, 6-2 in Paris a week ago. But obviously, Medvedev, upper hand against Zverev. Now, against Djokovic, I talked about I talked about it after Paris. I think this is going to be a good back-and-forth head-to-head for the foreseeable future. And on a court like this, I think Medvedev gets a bit of a boost. His serve can make more of an impact, and his forehand is less of a weakness. So Daniil Medvedev is my pick. I'm not going to delve into massive specifics, breaking down Djokovic versus Medvedev. We will cross that bridge if we get there. Let's move on. Let's move on to Stockholm first, and um, I'm in the middle of a move, so... It's not going to be the normal in-depth analysis, plus this video will be long enough as it is. Um, all right, big week for Tommy Paul. First career title. Well done. Um, very good week for Paul, and congratulations to him. Now, Tommy Paul is a guy, the athleticism was always there. He was always the athletic guy. Movement was standout. Junior French Open champion, uh, physically mature at an early age. Uh, somewhat patient, somewhat consistent, decent backhand, but he just didn't have a plan out there. He didn't have a consistent way to win. There was nothing that he could really lean on to win points in a repeatable way. Ground strokes just weren't overwhelming. Forehand wasn't, backhand wasn't, serve wasn't, volleys weren't. Nothing was really going to blow you away. So the movement was was good. The, the consistency was good. But he also wasn't going to grind his way into the top 30. That wasn't going to happen. So he needed a little bit more in his game. And what I saw this week was a little bit extra offense from him from polished serving, much better serving, and a transition game using his athleticism at the net. He's got good hands. The technique looked good. But the way he was moving 
um, can that can really be a weapon at net when when you're super athletic and you're making stretch volleys and you're closing the net well and you're approaching quickly, uh, you're you're kind of finding the right angles and that little extra offense combined with the way that he can move around the court. He's got a good running forehand, hits that forehand on the run really well. Uh, the way he covers the corners, um, combining that kind of defense defensive capability with that little extra offense that he's finding with a more polished game, a better transition game, a better serve, that is what I saw this week out of Tommy. Best I've ever seen him play by a country mile. And a quick word on American tennis. I mean, it's just a... It seems every single week this fall, it's been another American breaking out. Francis Tiafo playing the best tennis I've ever seen him play. Taylor Fritz playing the best tennis I've ever seen him play. Tommy Paul now playing the best tennis I've ever seen him play. It's not a coincidence. They're, they are pushing each other. That's what you see in tennis. That's how it is. Uh, it's not uncommon. Iron sharpens iron. I'll probably do a video on this at some point because it's such a pervasive theme. The big three have pushed each other. Italian tennis, as of late, pushed each other. Spanish tennis, 2010s, early 2010s, they pushed each other. Um, the little brother is usually the best player in the family. The older siblings push that guy or that girl. So not a coincidence, but uh, big year for American tennis. Uh, I did calculate a stat um, average ranking of the top 10 Americans. If I can find this on my Twitter feed real quick is was 57 at the start of the year is now 43, 43.5 to be exact, 57 of 43.5. That's the average of the top 10 Americans. So, as a group, as a collective, they have risen uh, in 2021, and it's been a big fall for them. Chapo loses in the final. It was a, a three-setter. It was a tight one. Um, it was good for him to make a final. Stockholm is the, the place where he's made his only, uh, where he's won his only title, and actually the place where he's won his only career semifinal. He's got a terrible record in semifinals. He, he did get a, a walkover on one occasion, so he's made three finals. But Stockholm is the only place that he's won a semifinal. He wins another here. Uh, but, you know, the Chapo, the one thing I'm concerned about, not really his play. You know, was that a big missed opportunity losing to Tommy? Yes. Is it the kind of player he's supposed to beat? Sort of, yeah. Um, but more than anything, I don't really like the things he's been saying. It's rubbing me a little bit the wrong way when it comes to his level, you know, his capabilities and just what I look for when it comes to the mentality of a champion. Uh, I don't think, you know, he basically said that after Wimbledon, he had some motivation issues after making the semis that he felt like it was going to be the peak for his season. Uh, I don't get that. I, you know, I don't understand how making the semis of Wimbledon is that satisfying that you have motivational issues afterwards. And you know me, I, I've been unbelievably sympathetic to that very 
psychological phenomenon when it comes to a Dominic team and all the players that's plagued. Novak Djokovic, uh, we saw it pretty badly with him. We saw it badly with Pete Sampras uh, in his career. I, I get that. When, when you accomplish great things, there's often a psychological dip. But making the, the semis, like I just think that Dennis's aspirations should be so much higher and more ambitious than that. And I think when he loses a final, he should be really ticked off, like really ticked off. And I, I'm just not feeling that from him. So I don't know if, you know, if his expectations for himself are below my expectations as a pundit, I'd never like that. And I'll just lower mine. But I'm a little bit, I just, I expect a little bit, I think he should have a little more ambition. Um, I'm just surprised by the things he's saying. Now, all of this is talk. I don't want to read into what people say in, in the press room too much. Uh, let's see what happens on the court. But his struggles combined with the things that, you know, he said he's had a great year. Have you had a great year? Like, I don't really want to hear that out of Dennis. I, I just, to me, he should want a lot more than what he did this year. So that's all I have to say about, about Chapo. Um, encouraging that he broke out of the slump. And he made a final here um, because he was uh, he was really struggling in a big way. So, you know, it was a productive week for him. It was a big week for him. But just paying a little bit more attention to the things he's been saying and to close his year, I, I was a little disappointed with that. Not to attack him as a person. I don't care. But just as someone who thinks Chapo can do massive things um, and win big titles, it's, it's weird for him to say things that I would classify as a little bit um, sub-champion sub mentality. You know, there's champion mentality and then there's sub-champion mentality. I think, you know, he, he's not saying the things that I, I really would expect to hear out of a player of his caliber. Uh, Felix also lost another opportunity for his first title. Felt like the perfect spot. To be completely honest, um, it, it really did feel like given the draw and given it was the very end of the season and there wasn't too much attention or pressure on Stockholm this week, it it felt like I thought Felix might do it. Uh, he was sounding confident, speaking of the press room, um, but it really would have helped him to go into this offseason with that elusive title under his belt. So that was uh, that was a disappointment for Felix. I think it. I think once he gets that, it will help him. I think he really um, could benefit from winning a title, and I don't think that's a bold statement. Carlos Alcaraz, man, he tore through the competition in Milan. Absolutely tore through the competition. I've never been this high on a prospect in my lifetime. That might sound like crazy or hyperbolic, but you, I'd remind you. I'm young. Um, when I remember young Djokovic, like I remember when he was wearing Adidas and playing with a Wilson racket. Okay. But those are my earliest memories of watching tennis. I mean, I was young. Um, so I've never been this high in a prospect in my lifetime. 
what I'm what I'm saying when I say the Djokovic thing, meaning I wasn't forming an opinion on 18-year-old Novak Djokovic or an intelligent one at that. Um, ever since I've I've been of a, a a decent enough age to be a critical thinker about tennis, this this for me is the best I've ever seen. Um, he beat Seb Korda in the final straight sets. And just shows all of the boxes that you check that's so impressive. Genetic lottery athleticism, turning defense to offense. Look at the set point in the first set. Um, really tight set. Could have been a turning point in the match. It's 6-5 in the tiebreak. Three-all tiebreak, of course. Fast-four format. And Korda hits a beautiful... Backhand down the line. No, it was a forehand inside in return. And Alcaraz neutralizes. And two shots later, he's hitting an approach shot, finishing at net. Defense to offense. Amazing fast twitch quickness. Movement into the corner. The racket skills to hit the, the cross-court heavy topspin loop uh, in, in a defensive situation. I mean, unbelievable. Every shot looks fluid and natural. Every shot on the court, probably besides his overhead, which I think needs fixing, that usually means when every shot looks fluid and natural, usually that means it's been trained. It looks like he hasn't ignored really anything. The slice, the volley, the return of serve, which a lot of young players struggle with the technique of that. Looks super natural to Alcaraz. Shortening it up, no problem. The forehand drop shot, by the way, is a really nice little signature weapon. He disguises it really well. He hits it beautifully. And the contrast, you know, considering how hard he hits his forehand, you know, for him to have the ability to finish in the midcourt on his forehand with the drive or the drop shot, I love that. I think he's going to, throughout his career, I think he's going to finish so much better on his forehand because he has that dropper. His intensity is awesome. I love how intense he is on the court. This tournament has been pretty predictive. Uh, Hyun Chung won the inaugural event in 2017 and made the Australian Open semifinal the next year. Stefano Tsitsipas won in 2018, made the Australian Open semifinal the next year. Yannick Sinner won the last time it was held in 2019. And two years later, he's in the top 10. I think Alcaraz has a chance to pull a Yannick Sinner only in a one-year stretch. I think Alcaraz is going to make a run at the top 10 next year. We'll see. We'll end the show with an update on Shui Pung. I don't want to repeat most of the stuff that I said in my video this morning. I'd much rather people just watch that. However, for all of you uh, listening on audio platforms, on the podcast version of this, I will insert it in here so you can hear it right now. The Shui Pung situation is a disaster, both a human rights one and a corporate one for the WTA. So let me get you caught up on this situation and then we will get into it. Peng took to Weibo, which is China's heavily censored version of Twitter or Facebook, to bring sexual assault allegations against the former vice premier of China, 
Gao Li Zhang. This is part of a growing Me Too movement happening in China right now. Now, the story took a turn for the worst after new reporting from the Daily Mail, which claims that after Peng brought these allegations, she has since gone missing. The player in question right now, if you need a reminder, former world number 14 in singles, former world number one in doubles, and French Open champion in doubles. Well, there's a couple of things here. First, let me address the elephant in the room, which is that nobody in China can watch this video. YouTube is censored there, so I am not speaking to anyone in China right now. Next, I want to address the Daily Mail piece itself. I noticed that it doesn't really have some of the journalistic safeguards or practices that I look for in really high-level and highly responsible and ethical journalism, which is attribution. Generally, when you report something, you tell people where the information is coming from. That's called attribution. I don't see any here. So the hope is that this is tabloid. This is a tabloid story. It is not true. The Daily Mail is not being responsible here. And in fact, Pung is not in any danger at all. Maybe she is hiding. Maybe she is laying low. But hopefully she's not in any danger right now. And hopefully she's not been abducted by the Chinese government. But right now, and if this story is true, this is what this looks like. It looks like a WTA player was abducted by the Chinese government after making claims of sexual abuse, and the WTA hasn't said anything. And keep in mind, the post that Peng put up on Weibo was deleted within 20 minutes. And then key search terms such as tennis were censored in China. So the government took this very seriously. The government obviously wants to sweep this under the rug. So that kind of brings a little bit of, I guess, belief when the Daily Mail comes out and, and they say these things. It's like, okay, that maybe, maybe checks out. So let's assume this is true. Because regardless of if the story is true or not, it really brings up some important issues that are worth talking about. The natural reflex as a fellow human being who's interested in human rights is that the WTA should probably publicly come out and say, we are aware of the situation, we are concerned about the situation, and we are going to work with our Chinese business partners to do whatever we can to resolve the situation, and we will go as far as to pause all of our business transactions with China until this situation is sorted out. That would be throwing all the money aside, throwing all the capitalism away. That would be how to handle this from a human rights perspective to try to ensure the safety of one Shui Peng. However, that would be pretty difficult for the WTA to do. The fact is, China, over recent years, has become one of the WTA's primary sources of income, main business partners. And one of the, the main examples of that is what they've done with the WTA finals, 
which is supposed to be in Shenzhen, which is this year and right now taking place in Guadalajara because of COVID-19. But when this deal was inked in 2018, and there were some of them that were similar to this, WTA CEO Steve Simon said that China had committed over a billion dollars to the WTA in rights fees, in a stadium, in prize money, in real estate, all of these things combined, they had invested over $1 billion in the WTA's product. There is a serious financial partnership that exists between the WTA and China, and it makes these situations very, very difficult. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, has already learned this the hard way. So let me tell a story right now, which I think is going to highlight how difficult it is to deal with human rights issues when they arise as it pertains to China for China's business partners. Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey came out and tweeted something in support of Hong Kong the Free Hong Kong Movement, hashtag Free Hong Kong, whatever it be, he tweeted out support for Hong Kong's freedom. And the response from China, who is a major business partner with the NBA, was rather volatile and extreme. In fact, they removed all NBA games from their state-run television. They took down all all NBA billboards, anything NBA, it was gone. All that money temporarily put on pause by China as it pertains to the NBA. And by the way, there are a lot of Houston Rocket fans in China because the greatest Chinese basketball player of all time, Yao Ming, was a Houston Rocket. And this is the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeting out support for Hong Kong. So what was the response here? Do you think the NBA stood behind the general manager of the Rockets, stood behind his statement, or did it begin to do damage control, force Daryl Morey to apologize for these for the statement, apologize to China personally, and do everything they could to try to heal and mend the wounds that were created, the business wounds that were created by that tweet? It was the latter. The NBA rushed to the defense of China, not as it pertains to, you know, giving their opinion on the political matter, which is, you know, whatever is happening between, you know, China and Hong Kong, not in that, but in making Daryl Morey apologize, threatening him with the loss of his job. Daryl Morey said he feared for his job. Um, having the NBA's top stars also apologize to China and essentially releasing a statement expressing disappointment in Daryl Morey for giving his opinion on a geopolitical matter, which is insane. Because in the United States, say what you will, there are a lot of problems with the United States, but one of the problems is not the freedom to publicly say your opinion about a geopolitical matter. That freedom is very much protected here, but not if you're GM of the Houston Rockets because the NBA is in business with China. These millions and millions and millions of dollars 
um, and the way China operates in terms of their the control of information and the way they ensure uh, the way they control basically what's out there, as has already been evident with this Shuaipeng story, with the way that they censored her post, the way they censored key search terms such as tennis after her post, they do not accept this, you know, discourse out there that goes against what they want to be out there. So it's very sensitive for the WTA to come out and, first of all, threaten China in any way over this situation or even really bring publicity to the Shuaipeng situation. Because remember, China does not want anyone to know about this. Otherwise, they would not have taken down the Weeblo post and they would not have censored Shui Peng's name, and even the word tennis, so that nobody can understand or see anything that's happening in this story right now in China. If they were okay with this stuff being out there, then they wouldn't have done any of that stuff. So, going back to the WTA, what are they going to do about this? Can they release a statement that admonishes the situation, that forces China to, to bring a peaceful conclusion to this situation? Probably, probably Unfortunately, not. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll put the link in the description. So a lot of what I said in that video, though, did have to pertain to how difficult and sometimes sticky it can be doing business with China. However, if you're going to do business with China, like the WTA has, the best way to go about it is to hold your ground, is to be strong, is to not allow them to bully you into silence. And I have to give Steve Simon a lot of credit and the WTA a lot of credit because he's come out and has said, and I quote from a New York Times article with uh, Christopher Clary and his reporting, Steve Simon said, quote, at the end of the day, if we don't see the appropriate results from this, we would be prepared to take the step and not operate our business in China, if that's what it came to. Steve's saying, look, if this doesn't get resolved in a satisfactory manner, we'll pull our business. Now, right now, that's just words, but those are those are good words. So I, you know, if I came across as skeptical of the WTA's response this morning, it's because I was skeptical of the WTA's response. So credit where credit is due. Steve Simon's statements and everything he said has been pretty strong, pretty good, you know, when it comes to just protecting his player, which should be his number one interest. Um, so I was happy to see that. Lastly, on Pung's safety, things are still unclear. Things are still unclear because um, Steve Simon said, and again, I quote, We've received confirmation from several sources, including the Chinese Tennis Association, that she is safe and not under any physical threat. My understanding is that she is in Beijing in China, but I can't confirm that because I haven't spoken directly with her. But, and now this is not a quote, this is from Clary, but Simon said that no one associated with the WTA tour, including officials and active players, had been able to reach her directly to confirm her status. So whatever's going on, it's fishy. Whatever is happening right now, it's fishy. Um, it doesn't mean that she is missing, 
but clearly whoever has attempted to reach out to her has failed to contact her. So when the Daily Mail says she is missing, I imagine that's where they're getting that from. And I, I don't know, you know, it's a, it's, it's touch, it's an uncertain situation. Uh, but again, I will end this topic by, um, saying, hoping and hoping and praying for, uh, Punk safety. That's the show. Enjoy the ATP finals this week, everyone, as well as the end of Guadalajara. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.